this is going to sound stupid, but I'll tell you. Okay, so the tool that I absolutely have to have. Do I have any of them right now? Or did I put them in my keys? Hold on, I put them in my keys. This is Philippe Herndon. <laughs> yes, I did. Okay. So the tool I have to have at almost any time is the humble guitar pick. He's the founder and owner of Caroline Guitar Company, which makes boutique guitar pedals that you can find on the pedal boards of big name musicians and in studios across the country. Because if I hear something that could sound cool, sounds possible, it's really important for me to immediately put that to a real world test. When Philippe failed to get a corporate gig as a product designer in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis, he turned to what he knew, music. Innovation is simple. It's creating something that wouldn't have existed if not for you doing it. From the outside looking in, the path of entrepreneurship is often portrayed with rose-colored glasses. It goes something like this. A brilliant, passionate underdog finds wild success after toiling away tirelessly at an invention or idea in some mythical garage or lab somewhere until a breakthrough hits. Well, Philippe's story fits this template exactly, except for the fact that it happened accidentally. As is the case with many of us, life has a funny way of throwing an unexpected wrench into plans. An inflection point and a career pivot later, and we validate the proverb of necessity driving invention. Philippe will tell you he is the accidental entrepreneur. But his success is no accident. For someone who didn't intend to do what he now does, he certainly didn't let adversity derail his passion to create things. And some big names, like Nels Klein and Jason Isbell, are probably pretty thankful he succeeded. Today, let's see what notes Philippe Herndon has on innovation. This is Of Note, a podcast on innovation. I'm Laura Quarter, Managing Director of South Carolina Department of Commerce's Office of Innovation. And I'm Joseph Nuther, co-founder of Design Sensory and PopFizz. We're talking to some of the most interesting minds in the South. They're hands-on, they're driven, and they're sharing their notes on invention, funding, entrepreneurship, growth, and so much more. What a character, Mr. Philippe Herndon. Uh, prior to being at the State Department of Commerce, I, I spent several years working for the USC Columbia Technology Incubator. And I just had an open door policy really with all of our entrepreneurs, you know, just come in, talk, you know, share your problems, kind of had a joke of a sort of a pseudo couch of just kind of a therapist sort of role for just the, the nuances of the troubles of, of, of running a business, starting a business. So anyways, Philippe would take full advantage of this in every way possible and would just walk by my door saying random things that I didn't know what to say to. So it was just a lot of shrugging of shoulders or he'd pop in and just start going off on these random pop culture references. And at the age of like 23, 24, I had no idea what he was talking about. Just kind of nod along like, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. But, but the thing about Philippe is you actually didn't even need to know what he was talking about. You were so just in his world. And in the, his energy, right? In his wake energy. of his energy. Yeah. yeah. That it's like, oh, I want to listen more, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, he just sort of pulls you in. Philippe is such a colorful character. His energy stands out for me. But I think the one thing that that is different from him amongst all the other people we talked to was that he was the reluctant entrepreneur. 
Oh no, no, I had no plan to make these products. I had absolutely no plan. I had gone to the Moore School of Business with the intent of developing into a marketing or product development post with a larger company. Uh, unfortunately, it was 2007 through 2009, which is the economic financial collapse in this country and nobody was hiring. So what I started to do is make these pedals with a friend of mine as what we called thunkware, as basically serve something for the portfolio that when I were to go to a product design or development firm, I'd be able to drop something on their desk and say, this is what I've been working for in the meantime while I've been looking for jobs. I was trying to become a lieutenant on a big ship. I was not trying to become a captain of a small ship. I'd always been interested in music. I mean, I stole my brother's bass guitar when I was eight years old. And I, after college, I toured and played with a band for seven years. Just always have fallen kind of back into it. And when I was a struggling, starving musician in the 1990s, I used to have to repair my own gear all the time. So I learned how to solder. I learned how to read schematics. I learned how to just kind of root through things and kind of just that this rough DIY approach. And then over the years, I had accumulated some ideas of what I would like to see done differently from my experiences as a player. You go back to what you know something about as a starting point for then exercising the tools that you want to put into use. I knew about guitars. I had a provisional patent design on a guitar idea that I wanted to do, and I just could not get it made to save my life. I, I just did not have the resources. I did not have the engineering skill. I did not have the ability to do these things. And just when I was about to just wrap it up and say, oh, I don't know, I'll take a job doing whatever at this point, I then met with a friend who I described some of the ideas I had about uh, distortion pedals, and he said, well, just set up shop in my garage or something like that. We'll fart around. I've got an angle iron and we have chemicals and stuff and we can just make something, you know? I mean, we can etch circuit boards. We can do different stuff just to make stuff happen. So I sat there. I busted ass for several days trying to get the first prototypes made. I mean, and this is all total DIY style. I mean, this is like I was sitting there with a Sharpie on copper plate and drawing out the mapping of how a printed circuit board would go. And then we'd dip the copper plate into etchant and it would strip away all the copper and just leave the traces where the components would go. And then I had to take a Dremel tool with a bit attachment, a drill press attachment, and drill every hole for every component. And then I put every component in, soldered them together, either with the traces or with the leads, and then put it into this box that we ground out of sheet metal and then drilled holes into and I put it together and I test continuity and it should work. We plug it in and it doesn't work at all. Like it does not make a noise. It does not do anything. There's nothing happening. And I just lied down on the floor of this guy's garage and just buried my head in my hands. Just kind of just like moaned and groaned for a moment. And I went home and I looked at my wife and I said, I'm gonna mope about this for 24 hours. And then tomorrow I will get in there and figure out what's going wrong. And in 15 minutes, I solved it. And that was our first prototype. We started out first in my home, and it was really funny. I was living in a 800 square foot home in Rosewood, which is a neighborhood here in Columbia, and we had taken over a room in my house. I'd say the room is about maybe about a third the size of this room, and we're trying to do everything from development to testing to everything in that room and it was quickly unsustainable. So I came here, I'd heard of the incubator when I was a student here at the University of South Carolina, and I presented in front of the board here and was slotted for a room. Then we decided to go to a trade show, it was really funny. And we went to the trade show and literally we had one product, 
one product. I had built three prototypes. All three worked barely. Like if you shook them or something, they wouldn't work. But people were pretty excited about what they were hearing. And then like I had three or four retailers right from the get go say like, I want that. If you're interested in doing more, count me in. So away we went from there. I mean, and again, th this was still, I was still in the mindset of like, I'll do this and I'll show this stuff. And then eventually I'll get signed on by a uh, creative consulting firm. But I just never stopped. After that point, I was like, wow, we have to keep making these. And then people are asking for this and you just keep making it. It's a matter of like, well, people still want the donuts. Might as well keep making the donuts, you know? Now, Philippe has made more than 12,000 pedals, which retail for around $200. And the company has distributors in the United States, Europe, Australia, and Japan. The bulk of the products are made right in his shop in Columbia, South Carolina. To get to this point, Philippe needed to figure out how to scale his business. And he turned to a non-traditional source to help fund his growth. We scaled through retailers, but then there's a point where we reached a level where just existing cash flow from operations was not enough for me to just certainly start turning out product. And then there are moments where we wanted to take leaps and see if there's also interest in products that we hadn't made yet. So we did two different crowdfunding campaigns. We were the first guitar pedal company to ever do a crowdfunding or Kickstarter campaign, at least to the best of my knowledge. But what Kickstarter has told me is that we were the first. The first campaign I remember we set a very reasonable goal. The goal was just whatever cash flow we needed to keep going and make the product to get going. Because I don't feel that when people are crowdfunding, they're paying for your lifestyle or they're paying for you to have fancy offices or feel like you can walk around like, I'm an entrepreneur. What they're paying for is, in my opinion, just to get you going. It's Kickstarter. We did a Kickstarter and I always remember this. <laughs> so. At this time, there's so much suspicion around anything in crowdfunding and music, or there's like an initial backlash, like, oh, some guy wants to record his album using no one gives a shit about. He's going to crowdfund it, right? And so I remember we put the campaign together, and I went online, and I just saw I was getting just torn up in these forums about doing a crowdfunded guitar pedal. And uh, I went to bed a little mad. I was punching my pillow a little about that. And... Uh, then the next morning I woke up and saw that we'd hit our goal. Our goal was just three grand. But then like we did 280% of the goal within like two weeks. And so I thought, well, people believe in us enough to make this thing. Let's just see what happens. We revisited again later with a product. We set a higher goal of 8,000. We hit that in 36 hours, I think the next time. At that point, I realized people believe in what we want to do. This is viable enough that we can start taking risks and our customers will be along with us. It is so frequent we tell entrepreneurs or anyone that's just tinkering with an idea, just just start with one thing, just one. Or or another way of thinking of it is your 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 MVP or your your, your minimally viable product. Um, and start getting feedback. You know, Philippe pretty much lived and breathed this uh, through all of his his development. Uh, and it sounds simple, but when we when we start getting competing feedback from from fellow uh, entrepreneurs even or from customers or even competing advice from mentors, your own imagination, it, it gets hard to kind of narrow down is what do I want to be good at? What is that one thing I want to kind of master and be good at? But uh but but find out what that is. And that's what Philippe has done, and he's grown from there. How, how, does someone, um, how does someone discern 
what features should be or not be in the MVP? I mean, I think that comes down to really understanding and having empathy for, for your customer. I mean, at the end of the day, they're who you're trying to help. So knowing what is most important and valuable to them is what's then going to drive what's in that MVP. Right. So that customer-centric model of, of, of just totally focusing on them and how I can deliver as much value as I can, but hedging my risks on how much I have to put into that. Absolutely. Laura, Philippe also mentions a, a, a unique source of, of funding in his early days, uh, perhaps a more modern form, which is crowdfunding. Uh, can you speak any to that? I don't know if you were around when he was uh, doing that, or, or, or but have you seen success from that? And Yeah, so, so Philippe is a prime example and candidate for somebody that should crowdfund. I know it kind of became this shiny object when it first kind of rolled out. I was like, oh, that's kind of my, that's my answer for my capital problem. Uh, but in reality, it has to be a product, a consumer-facing product, first of all. That, that tend to have the most successful campaigns. You know, you're selling a product that has a, kind of already a culture and following to it, if, if that makes sense. A so story the, so, to yeah, tell. Yeah, a story to tell. The, the, the music industry is perfect for this. We all usually have that, those favorite bands or whoever we already follow. Um, and so for Philippe to kind of roll out his, his pedal there was a good test market, one, for the product itself, but then two, to obviously get the capital he needed to, to actually build it. And, and probably it, it also suited him pretty well, right, as a person, because he could tell that story pretty easily. Philippe, aside from just being an amazing musician and, and, and obviously very passionate about product development, he has a command of the necessity for, for marketing. And that is a key component for a, a Kickstarter campaign or any kind of crowdfunding campaign to succeed. And that same acumen for, for marketing has really what's helped him segue into building relationships with, with famous artists and really get them using it and that understanding of, hey, they're using this, people are going to follow and want it even more. This podcast is part of Scribble, South Carolina's voice of innovation. We celebrate and support the innovative activity across the state by connecting people to people. Visit ScribbleSC.com for exclusive interviews, tools, and resources. That's ScribbleSC.com. I've been really proud of the work we've done with Dave Cobb, Nashville producers produced Sturtle Simpson, Isbell, Miranda Lambert, lots of people. He gave us the idea for what became our Hawaiian pizza pedal. He raved about our work. We've had great interactions with Nels Klein of Wilco, who's a wonderful guitar player, just an absolute dream of a guitar player. Have a hilarious story about uh, Ben, one of my employees, going to show Nels Klein a bunch of pedals. And Nels Klein is like, here, you play, and hands Ben Nels Klein's priceless 1959 Fender Jazzmaster worth tens of thousands of dollars is making Ben play the same riffs that Ben says he played for 12 people in a bar in Charleston uh, while Nels Klein is testing out pedals in a big arena in Atlanta. Uh, Zubin Thakar, who is the uh, guitar player and musical director for Shawn Mendes, playing our stuff at the Grammys. I mean, sending me photos on Instagram of like, here's my board at the Grammys. You can see there's some of your stuff on it. I think the most moving for me was Chris Cornell, the late lead singer and guitar player for Soundgarden and solo artist and audio slave. I remember getting a call from his guitar tech, Stephen Ferrer Grand, and uh, it was just a really moving conversation where he's like, Chris really likes these things. He wants two of each of them, can you make them? And what he wanted was something that was exclusive we were making for a retailer, and I couldn't do it, just out of my sense of obligation to the retailer that had given us money. So what I did was I went home, I messaged his tech and said, I'm going to make something I hope he'll like as much. 
Just give me a day, please. I went home, I took blank enclosures, I drill pressed them out. I took hammered spray paint that people use for like benches and things like this, hammered spray paint, baked it in a toaster oven, stuck Dymo labels on it, like, like basically to look like our original prototypes, put knobs together and wired it with this extra mod that we thought he would like, boxed them up. They loved it. The names of Philippe's products are as charismatic as the people who use them. The naming strategy of the pedals relates to what I discovered years after playing music professionally and always being embarrassed about band names that I was in. Because everybody I know has been in a band and they, you ask them, well, what's the name of your band? They're like, well, it's, and they kind of mutter it. And you're like, why'd you choose such a terrible band name? They're like, well, it's what we all agreed on. In hindsight, here's how you name a band. You imagine someone that you're attracted to who's a stranger meeting you at a bar or a coffee shop and it's come up, oh, I'm in a band. And the person who you're attracted to says, what's the name of your band? And you need to say something that makes you feel cool. Because if it doesn't, if you have to say, what's this? Because of, well, it's this. Let me explain a little further. Da -da. No, you're dead. It's, it's done. Like, it just needs to be able to something you can say that makes you feel pretty cool. So some of the names uh, of our products, Wave Cannon. Wave Cannon makes me feel cool. Shikaharu, it's named for my favorite friend and uh, sushi waiter here in town. Parabola, Kilobyte, Meteor. I mean, they felt like cool names when we were saying what our products do. You might think Philippe rushes into names, but he's actually quite methodical about how he designs and names his products. I took my time developing things, and there's a lot of it is editing. We only release one or two pedals a year at most because a lot of the time spent is spent in editing. My father was an, a newspaper editor, and I'd see how many drafts he'd have gone through as an editor from what was originally handed to him by a reporter or a columnist versus the final edits. And sometimes it was six, seven, eight edits. I had that same experience here where it's like, just because I make something and it sounds something and it makes a good sound and I feel pretty pleased with it right from the get-go does not mean that we are ready to go. Well, what happens when I come back to this two days later? What happens to it when I switch out these components? What happens to it when I change these component values? What happens when I change this component material? A lot of it is, what happens to this when we put it in the real world as opposed to the theoretical world? One thing I was grateful for from my professional experience at Ericsson is I was able to witness and observe product development teams and they had what they called toll gates. And they said, at this toll gate, we just have to make sure there's proof of concept. At this toll gate, we have to make sure that we can actually build this thing. At this toll gate, we have to see actually what happens when users use these things and how we have to change the product. So the beauty in these kinds of devices and our ability to take time with these things is that while we're developing things, I can learn about other things that we want to do for future releases. I saw a lot of companies would launch from the beginning with eight or nine products right from the get-go and it would flop because it became readily apparent that they had not taken the time to develop expertise and understanding of their work for all eight things at once. So our customers have been patient with us. They've allowed me to take the time to say, hey, I'm gonna release a tremolo pedal and I'm gonna spend a year studying the tremolo pedals that I like, and then we're gonna elaborate on something based on that information. 
Yeah, I, I love how Philippe uses his his history and his experience with his dad from the publishing industry is kind of in his mind, the editing process, this constant iteration on products. And while others would obviously look at that as like a product development process or a discovery process, but for Philippe, it's all editing. Yeah, I, I mean, I was uh, totally attracted to to what he had to say about this. You know, you see him here probably in 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 his in his uh, uh, sweet spot as a product designer, and he's referencing the edit. But I mean, as a designer myself, and as someone who comes out the communication industry that way, I can definitely tell you that that iteration and edit is where it's at. Star Wars was the original Star Wars was made in the edit. If you look at the the history of uh, of George Lucas's commentary on that, um, you know, in those days when they shot that, they weren't sure what they had, and they were freaking out up until the point where they got in the edit bay and made it happen. So, but I think that's the case with a lot of people when it comes to actually making something, which he also talks about, uh, you, you do have to go through that process. But at some point, did you put too much in? Is there's a little nip here, tuck there, uh, re removing something here? I've always found that, generally speaking, uh, tightening it up, removing something is kind of where, uh, you, you know, it, it's made good. It, it, something goes from good to great. Yeah. And I guess to me, what's the real key takeaway, whatever you want to call it, they're all essential for innovation to occur. That iterative process. Yeah. Yeah. And and for Philippe, I think he says it best. You need to just get in there and start making something because then you'll have something that you can iterate on. I think it's really important to produce. I think it's incredibly important to produce. I think a lot of people get hung up on their first thing having to be perfect. And it doesn't have to be perfect. You can get something up in the air and then start revising it. You can get something out and it can flop and you can just say, okay, well, what information can I take from this and do a second version? The best songwriters I know, the most successful songwriters and the most successful musicians I know are always creating and they're not sitting around saying, if something didn't succeed for them the way they want, pointing at it and pouting and saying the world has been unfair to them. I mean, the world is obviously unfair to people. The world is unfair to people in scales that are way beyond anything what we encounter in the world of business. What is incredibly useful from this is discovering what information you can take from this how you can process that pain or that difficulty or that adversity and be able to make something new from it. I've released products that have flopped, like in my opinion, have flopped or did not do as well as they wanted to. Did I think they were great products? Yes. Do I think that they are good and I will still use them? Yes. But the market has told me that this is not what they want from me. Get the Zeppelin up in the air. Get the thing in the air. Just start with proof of concept and get it going. Get something happening. And if it doesn't work out the way you want it to, then figure out what you want to do differently for the next thing. Philippe underscores the importance of staying motivated because you have to iterate early and often, especially when confronted with failure. A big part of what keeps me charged and energized about this stuff is the feedback that we do get from our customers. When they've relayed to me that it was really important to them, that their work really matters to them, that made a sound that they never would have found, or it was a sound they were looking for, or it allowed them to do something that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, or just that they had fun. That's the big thing. I mean, maybe the most moving message I saw on social media over the past year was a guy who he was taking care of his kid and his wife was sick. She was in, I think she was in cancer treatment. He was just overrun during the day between his responsibilities professionally and personally and his commitments to his family and commitments to his kids. And he was able to get complete joy the time he would have to himself after he'd be able to get everyone to sleep be able to set up an amplifier quietly where it wouldn't disrupt his kids or things. 
and record and play music. And that became incredibly important to him and he appreciated our pedals for that. That to me is like, if I had gotten hired by a production and design firm out of university like I was supposed to be, I would have never created the first products that then led to the products that did that for him. And it's just as important to embrace change as it is to stay excited about the future. You know, I, I'm going to be very honest about this. I wouldn't have seen myself still doing this in five years when I started it. I wouldn't have seen myself doing this in five years when we do it. But what I look forward to in five years is figuring out what excites me in five years about this kind of work, about with this kind of work in the audio sphere, about this kind of work in the production sphere or the music recording sphere, and what we'll be pursuing at that time. Because I've seen this industry take dramatic changes just in the last seven years in terms of how music is recorded, written, produced, performed, executed, and who knows what's gonna be the thing that turns the tables on us in five years. You look at Caroline Guitar Company and you just, you see Philippe all over, inside and out of it. His brand is just him at the core. And, and for most companies, you know, Sometimes the marketing and branding component of it can really get put on the back burner. It, it's it's not a necessity when you think about what do you need for that MVP. But for Philippe, the brand was kind of just as much as part of it uh, after he got the pedals going. Because for him, you know, when you think about music, you're not just selling a guitar pedal. You're selling an experience. And that experience needs a brand to anchor to. Uh, so that's where Philippe is, is unique. But for most startups, you know, a lot of times those founders, there's there's not a marketing person there. And so as they start to develop, they kind of find themselves in this, eventually in their growth phase of like, oh gosh, now what do I do? I don't have a plan in place. I don't have a marketing. I don't, I don't, even, I don't even have a name for this thing yet. Now what? And so a lot of times it can be very common that uh, small businesses get to a point where they have no marketing, either budget or idea of what that even means. But for Caroline Guitar Company, they had to plan out the gate. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, I, I hope perhaps that if, if the founders don't have that sort of subject matter expertise early on, perhaps they turn to people or agencies or freelancers or someone who, uh, consultants who, who can provide that. Because I think more and more today, I'm seeing a lot of differentiation that's that's predominantly on a brand side. Certainly in your case, what you're talking about would be maybe a, a technology-oriented play, right? Where they are developing IP that is essentially what is differentiating them from their competition. But in his case, not only is he producing that, but he's also wanting to wrap around that an experience that will take it further. And, and I think that 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 I think these days it's feeling like more and more that that is also the part that that a lot of these these companies are competing on as well. There's just so many options in the marketplace now that the the quote window dressing uh, of the past that that helped differentiate brands is really now somewhat at the core of how a person would relate to it. I mean, when I walked in there and saw his product, I had a visceral reaction to it the way it looked and the obvious cultural references that he baked in. Um, and, and, and it was, it was something that, that I won't forget, uh, because of that, but he knows that he knows that's the power of design. And, uh, it's just really neat to see where he's taken that in his product line. And that is something we obviously wanted to talk more about. We were lucky uh, in business school to get introduced to the concept of a style guide. I was really, that was something that even though I'd worked professionally for a long time, I'd never thought about how important those kinds of decisions get made. And I remember 
I was shown Skype's style guide. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, they are so specific about everything from like that shade of blue to the typography they use, to the typography of the logo, to the typography that they're using in all the communications, to all the verbiage, all these things. And it became apparent that once they'd established a style guide, once they established kind of a visual, their visual guidebook of how they were going to communicate their aesthetics, a lot of things ran downhill from there. We were ascribing back to the concept of the style guide, or we were taking deviations or variations from that style guide. So our typeset got established, our iconography and mindset got established, our size of box got established, our placement got established. Those boundaries really helped us establish what we wanted to do creatively. For all of the conversations on brand identity, Philippe believes it's okay for your brand to be driven by who you are and what you like. Okay, so this is the new logo, or one of the, the counter logos. And this is for the Caroline Corporation, which is our uh, side brand of Caroline Guitar Company branding. And the Caroline Corporation is a fictitious 1970s evil corporation shut down by various arms trading and defense scandals of the 1980s. It's very much based on kind of our imaginary Omni Consumer Products Corporation from Robocop, mixed a little bit with Dharma Initiative or uh, Capsule Corporation or different things. And it's just sort of our funny joke where we're like, well, what would our 1970s bosses have made us do? When we're like asking a question, like imagine what Caroline Corporation would have made us done and then we do the opposite. Whether you're into music, engineering, or branding, Philippe's got some advice for you. I guess it goes back to some of the stuff my dad said when he was an editor. He used to tell me he didn't believe in writer's block, but he just believed that writers got lazy and stopped writing and stopped making things. He said, there's no such thing as writer's block. There's just people who are afraid to do bad work while doing good work. My dad was at the Dallas Times-Herald, Los Angeles Times, Miami Herald, United Press International. He was serious in very high levels of journalism. And he told me about people he knew who hadn't written columns or turned in work for months. And he says, it's just going to get worse. We need to get rid of them or they need to just write something, even if it's junk, to get them doing stuff again. And he had a real good point is that people who are creative or want to do something, who want to be productive, it's not all going to be magic. You're not going to always have home runs. They're not all going to be hits. I mean... Thriller is the biggest album in the world, and they're like four songs that aren't hits. You know, not all of them are hits, folks. You just write a lot of songs, and you hope that they're good, and you make them the best they can be, and you go from there. And that's a similar kind of approach with this. Not everything I try on a breadboard works. I regularly have days where there's just stuff I tried, and I walk away, and I'm like, man, that sucked. That was bad. That sounded bad. I couldn't do anything. But the point is, is just keep going. You keep trying to produce and get the plane in the air. Get something on paper, get something running downhill, get it real. My name is Philippe Raymond Herndon, and those were my notes on innovation. This has been Of Note, a podcast that gets up close and personal with innovative people so we can learn from their successes and failures. I'm Joseph Nuther. I'm Laura Quarter. And this is an original production by the South Carolina Office of Innovation and Design Sensory. Our producer and editor is Hunter Foster. Our sound engineer is Mike Deering with original music by Matt Honkinen. Check out more interviews, our blog, and resource area at scribblesc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ready, Set, Scribble. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Until next time, keep pursuing your transformational ideas. Next time on Of Note. My friends were very surprised at first. Like, I'm friends with a famous person. <laughs> oh my God, this is it's a really big leap when you want to tell your friends that it's, you have an international business that's making a lot of money. Um, you have friends that are asking you if you can have money or be a part of your business so they can make money as well. They want to ask you if they can travel with you or whatever. My friends talk about it a lot. <laughs>